It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios. Welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. You and you still like me or you, or you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. <laughs> I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth. In America, wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. Tonight, stunning images as rioters supporting President Trump overrun the Capitol, scuffling with police. On the floor of the House, officers with guns drawn, with protesters just outside the door. Here, you see rioters trying to break down a door, and you hear a gunshot. Over in the Senate, protesters breaching what's supposed to be the highly secure Senate floor, abruptly stopping the counting of electoral votes. Some taking photos on the Senate Dayet, others shouting and pushing past officers to get inside. Elsewhere, this man sitting with his feet up behind a desk in Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office. Police placing the Capitol on lockdown. A riot was declared. It was clear that the crowd was intent on causing harm to our officers by deploying chemical irritants on police. Members of Congress rushing to take shelter, some wearing gas masks. We were just told that there has been tear gas in the rotunda and we're being instructed uh, to each of us get uh, gas masks that are under our seats. It began just after that massive pro-Trump rally. Tens of thousands gathering near the White House to protest the expected declaration of Joe Biden's Electoral College victory. The group then marching to the Capitol. Many just standing on the steps outside. Others wandering in the rotunda. Some scaling down the building. At one point, an armed standoff. Police say one person was shot. Democratic and Republican lawmakers urged President Trump to appear on camera to tell the protesters to leave. Instead, he later tweeted asking protesters to remain peaceful and respect police. That was Casey Hunt of NBC, and that was a report from one year ago today. That was the infamous January 6th where uh, an estimated 6 million, and, there, and we say 6 million because there was some sort of a, a camera up above maybe on a... Uh, taking the count, and six million people came to the Capitol to support President Trump. They were concerned about the election. They brought their grandmas, their children, their aunts, their uncles, and some came in military dress. Uh, And they uh, listened to President Trump, and then some of them, actually very few of them, went on to the Capitol. They were urged to march over there peacefully, (laughs) not to cause any kind of trouble, but once they got there, trouble started. And uh, the problem with the Capitol is that it has several different levels, several different entrances. And so what happened that day depends on kind of what door you were at and also what you listened to. Uh, NBC pretty much set the narrative, and that's what we're hearing now, is that it was an insurrection, that President Trump was at fault, uh, and that Trump supporters came to D.C. and disrupted an official proceeding. But as the weeks and months have unfolded, we have found out a lot of things about that day that you're still not hearing in the news. And so we report about this almost every day. I have no time to recount all of it. I'll just tell you that 725 people have been arrested. 165 have pleaded guilty, mostly to misdemeanors. And some of them are still wasting away 
on hold in jails after a whole year of being there, really charged with nothing, just on hold, awaiting, awaiting pretrial hearings. Joseph McBride is an attorney from New York City, and you've probably seen him on television because he has really been a champion for so many of those people that have been incarcerated, especially in the D.C. jail, which we've talked about and we will talk about again today. Joseph is the founder of McBride Law Incorporated uh, in, in uh, New York City. He was a criminal defense attorney. Uh, and so, uh, Joseph, thanks, first of all, for joining us. I really appreciate it. It's good to be here, Sandy. Thank you for having me. I have to ask you, first question, how in the world did you get involved in this? Because so many attorneys ran the other way. Most of them did. How did you get involved with this and why? Sure. So, you know, I came to the practice of law for very personal reasons. Uh, make a long story short. Uh, I have an adopted learning disabled brother that was falsely arrested and accused of a crime that he did not commit. He was threatened with an incredible amount of time in jail and uh, was basically coaxed into signing a plea agreement where he took 15 years in jail uh, for, for something that he didn't do. Um, I come from a, from a good Christian family. We're from the Northeast, so we're practicing Catholics. And uh, my mom and dad uh, were foster parents for about 20 kids. Uh, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. My dad worked for a local utility company. They gave their heart and soul and life to, to the church, to Jesus, and, and, and to the, the lost sort of children of, of our area. And we adopted my brother. And after, you know, having had adopted him and, and all these things happened, and then watching their hearts break and watching them suffer, um, you know, it was one thing to have my brother go in, and that was a tragedy in itself, but to watch the pain on my mom and dad's faces, such good people suffering at such a deep level. I, I was uh, immediately transformed in that moment. And, you know, I decided that that moment I'd become a lawyer. So I set out and, you know, I went to school to become a lawyer to try to get my brother out. I've made my career on uh, fighting against uh, injustice. And so uh, when I was got a call about uh, Richard Barnett's case, he's, he's one of five people I represent now. Back uh, last year, you know, I thought about it. I prayed about it. And, uh, you know, um, I, I took his case on Ash Wednesday uh, uh, last February, and uh, we, we marched forward. Um, unfortunately, I was able to get him out. Um, but unfortunately, there are some other people who are, who are, who are still in. Um, okay. It's unjust. It's, it's political persecution. It's wrong. But that, that's sort of how I arrived here today. Um, Joseph, when you listen to that report from NBC, and certainly if you watch uh, even Fox, uh, with the exception of Tucker and a few other hosts, uh, or, or CBS or CNN, you're going to see the narrative that I kind of laid out very briefly, uh, that it was an insurrection, and it was these no-good, horrible Trump supporters, and that they attacked the police, that they broke out windows, did damage to the Capitol, they were trying to overturn an election result, and they deserve to be punished. And that's what a lot of people think. What's your perspective after looking into it? And uh, we're going to get into your cases in just a second. But in general, what's your perspective now after you've dealt with it for a year? My perspective is that the Constitution of the United States was, is an inspired document. It was written uh, by inspired men during times like these, four times like these, anticipating the arrival of a future authoritarian regime who would try to do to its citizens what England had done to, to those people. And that people can feel whatever they, they want, whatever way they want. When it comes to the criminal process and the, and the protections of the Constitution, their feelings are 
entirely irrelevant. They are meaningless and they mean nothing. As a matter of fact, if I were polling them, if I were doing board gear and selecting them for my jury, I would ask them, are you able to get over your feelings about this day? And if, if they were not able to get over their feelings about that day, they would immediately be kicked off the potential uh, pool of, of jurors. They'd be off the panel because you have to get an objective jury in front of your, your, the accused person in order for that person to have a fair trial. The idea that people should be punished absent due process, the idea that people should be punished absent a finding of fact is not American. That is what North Korea and China and China does. That is not what the uh, Constitutional Republic of the United States of America does. So my answer to those people is that the Constitution was written to protect citizens against people like them. So and to be clear, the, the difference is they are not convicted of anything. They're in a holding pattern pre-trial before they even they don't even have all the evidence in. So they're not convicted. They're not guilty. They're just being held. And what's happening and my, my audience is sophisticated about this, Joseph. They know a lot. Uh, so they've been held in these jails, uh, 700 people. I think it's seven have been arrested, 725. Uh, and uh, kind of describe, and again, this will not be new information, but I, I want to know from you, uh, how would you describe the conditions under which these people who are just charged, they are charged, right? They're charged, but not, but not sure. criminally. What's the difference? Give me the legal terms. Sure. So, look, you, you, you've been indicted, you've been charged, and, and the government is asking for you to be, taint, to be detained pre-trial upon a finding of probable cause. In the United States of America, uh, liberty is the norm, and pre-trial uh, detention is the carefully limited exception. Uh, in, in most cases, uh, people are, especially in the federal system, they're not held pre-trial. They, uh, you're given an ankle monitor, you're sent that you're, you're on house arrest, you go home, don't do this, don't do that, there are a bunch of conditions, but you're generally able to fight your case from the outside, unless you are a flight risk, which none of these guys are, or unless you are uh, so dangerous that the, you know, that, that the, the society will not be safe um, if, if you return. Uh, the judges haven't followed the law in these cases, and they're holding these guys in jail in violation of their due process rights with regard to the conditions under which they're being held, they are objectively disgusting. You have uh, COVID-19 being used as a pretext to keep people in solitary confinement for months and months and months at a time of solitary confinement, 15 days of solitary confinement of, uh, or more is, uh, ident- is, is called prolonged solitary confinement. Prolonged solitary confinement is objectively identified and labeled as torture by the Nelson Mandela rules of the United Nations. New York State recognizes it the same. It is straight-up torture. You can't do it. In addition to that, you have people who are being beaten. You have people who are being starved. Uh, one of my clients, Christopher Quaglin, was just transferred to Northern Neck Regional Jail. It's the sixth time that he's been moved. The prison system is retaliating against him because he's been outspoken about his conduct. He has celiac disease. He arrived there on the 21st of December. He has lost 20 pounds. They put him in a room full of people with COVID-19. He got COVID-19, and then they stuck him in solitary confinement. That is malicious. That is punishment. That is torture. You cannot do that. It is illegal, and it is happening. And he is just one of a 100 different examples 
of punishment and of torture that have happened to these men since they've been confined. Could I, let me interject about, since uh, you mentioned his name, Christopher Quaglin, I have this article that just came out with Epoch Times, I think yesterday. You did an interview with him and you were describing the conditions that you just repeated there. But you also include your correspondence uh, with the superintendent of the Northern Neck Regional Jail. And I will, let me just say, it's just filled with peak. He is so unprofessional. He's angry with you. You're asking that this prisoner be treated appropriately, be fed, get medical treatment. And he comes back at you with just, um, he insults you and he says you have no power and uh, rest assured he's basically not going to listen to you about anything. I just think even his rhetoric, even if I were inclined to not believe that you were right about this, uh, as an objective reader, uh, it's very vitriolic and unnecessary. Do you have any power to stop this and to make sure that Christopher Quaglin gets and others get proper care? Of course we do. Um, you know, we can file uh, various different motions. The habeas, cor- a writ of habeas corpus is one of them where we would, you know, argue to the court that a person is being ha- held uh, illegally or in violation of their constitutionally protected rights, their human rights, so on and so forth. Uh, you know, Superintendent Hull over there at Northern Neck Regional Jail is, is was hostile. Um, that is uh, indicative of the a way that the prison system feels about January 6th detainees. They're being targeted, whether they are in Northern Neck or whether they are in D.C., Guantanamo Bay. Uh, Warden Catherine Landerkin, um, is, she was on Twitter saying, F Donald Trump and everyone who supports him. Yet she is, uh, has you know about 60 January 6th detainees in her custody who are being you know, uh, treated very unfairly, they're being punished on a regular basis. Here's what is important. If you are a convicted person, if you have already had your day in court, then you are allowed to be punished because punishment is a part of your sentence. You have had due process. But if you have not been convicted and if you are merely being detained, then you are not allowed to be punished. Your punishment is actually illegal. And we are doing our best to demonstrate to the court that, hey, these detainees are being punished, sometimes cruel and unusual. Because of this, they should be let out. Unfortunately, because of the politics involved, the D.C. courts could care less about what we're saying. So we find ourselves at a crossroads between are the courts going to follow the Constitution or are they simply going to drill down on their political positions and their and their own biases and beliefs about what happened on January 6th and keep these guys in there despite the fact that they should be let out? Yeah, and Joseph, there time and time again, even some judges that whose names I've been familiar with in the past who've done some pretty decent rulings just seem to double down on the D.C. narrative of what happened on that day. And there is a different narrative there. You know that. I mean, if you are if you were in Congress, you know, you're, you're, you're frightened to death, and uh, the, you heard these loud noises, and how dare they disrupt democracy, these people who are, you know, part of the, of the people, by the people, for the people system. How dare they disrupt this? They had this, this peak about how dare the people come and try to make their voices heard. Now, I am not defending criminal acts. I'm talking about uh, many people that went into that Capitol, most people, did nothing other than walk around. Many of them were allowed to come in. We've seen the videos. Uh, They were invited in by Capitol Police. So it is a completely mixed bag. Uh, They're not all criminals. Yet my point is, Joseph, that the uh, 
judges, from my perspective and what I've read, just drill down on the narrative. They seem to be completely unaware that there's another story going on here. But recently, in the D.C. jail, you did you did get some uh, traction because of uh, Louis Gohmert and Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene and others going. What could you say about that? Well, so uh, members of the Freedom Caucus, in particular, uh, Lu- uh, Louis Gohmert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, Matt Gates, and... Uh, uh, Dr. Gosar had been trying to gain access to the uh, D.C. jail since July. They were finally let into the jail on November 4th. After they were in the jail, they published a report condemning the conditions there. Um, and so we, we, we started to build some momentum at that time. Unfortunately, the reason why Christopher Quaglin has been moved around and why he's being targeted and other people as well but with regard to Christopher, it's because he actually had a one-on-one conversation with Congresswoman Green for a long time. He had celiac disease. He was expressing to her that he's been, been in severe pain. She took off his cause, published the report, and put him on the front cover of the report. He's been retaliated against because mm-hmm. of that. But other members of Congress are now starting to take notice. Just this week, Congressman Clay Higgins, in conjunction with Congresswoman Green, published a letter directly to Director Carvajal of the Federal Bureau of Prisons, telling Director Carvajal that we know what's going on and that if this person uh, is, is damaged or, or, or even dies in your care, that the sun will not set on his grave before we hold you criminally liable. That's a strong letter. And he said a lot of other strong things in that letter. And that letter was signed by 14 members of Congress. And just this morning, I spoke to Congress, uh, Congressman Andy Biggs, and I've been speak to, speaking to some other people along the way. There seems to be some traction, um, which is very good, but it's not enough. It's a member. It's, it, it's a group. It's a cohort of uh, constitutionalist America first uh, Republicans who are speaking up about this. But there are another group of Republicans, which I would submit at this point are Republicans in name only, who are not speaking up about this. And if they're not speaking up about this, then they are wrong. And then there is, of course, the liberal side, the Democratic side of Congress, who for years, for the last 50 years, have been the champions of civil rights and prison reform and against solitary confinement, your Elizabeth Warrens and your Dick Durbin. Where are these people now? These people are silent because the people whose rights are being violated are members of the political party whom they disagree with. The ACLU, Amnesty International, all these organizations are doing nothing. They're silent, and it is wrong, and it is deeply troubling. Yes, and I, one other thing, there's another twist to this, of course. Everybody can see with their own eyes, like the the uh, J6 committee, that's put, the kangaroo court that's put together by the Democrats, are coming after the Republican conservatives, especially in the Freedom Caucus, and accusing them of being part of this insurrection. And so there's a fear. I mean, they have instilled fear. It's been very successful. And let me just add something very practical. Uh, I want to ask all of you to go to alignact.com, A-L-I-G-N-A-C-T, alignact.com. I've mentioned it earlier this week. I trust this organization. They're people that I know. They are not going to keep your information and use it wrongly. They are good. They're us. They're good folk. And what we're doing is we're sending a really pointed letter to members of Congress demanding that they act on this, demanding. And it's alignact.com, and it's, um, 
Uh, it basically says that the treatment of the prisoners from the events on January 6th are something out of a totalitarian regime, and that's just the first sentence. And so it's alineact.com, and you can do your part to help on that. Uh, Joseph, I'm curious about, I wondered about this, and no one's ever given me, uh, we only, this time is going to go so fast. We have three, three minutes left. Uh, the Supreme Court, don't they ultimately, aren't they over all the courts? How can they sit back and let the D.C. courts uh, operate in this manner? So, yeah, that's a great question. They are certainly above all the courts. But in order for the Supreme Court to act, you have to appeal your way up to the Supreme Court. You have to file um, a writ of certiorari. They have to accept your case. It's a process. So these lower courts are saying, yeah, will the Supreme Court overrule us at some point? Probably. Do you, are you ever going to you know, have the budget to litigate uh, your case up to the Supreme Court? Probably not. So good luck with that. So that's one of the reasons why we have been crowdfunding and we have been asking people to donate to various Gibson goes and to help us along the way because the Department of Justice has an unlimited budget and they are counting on the fact that they're going to bleed out these families. They're going to bleed out these legal defense funds and they're going to leave people in a position where they're going to have to give up at some point. And that is wrong. And I know we're limited on time, so the last thing I'll say is I publish a lot of these updates about what's going on with specific cases all the time on my Twitter feed and on my Getter feed. Um, I'm, a, I'm at McBride Law NYC. It's very easy. Um, so if you're interested in following what's going on there day to day, I publish sometimes two, three times a day about what's going on in various cases. People have found that helpful. Yes, I've, I've actually had them sent to me. I'm not. I, I'm going to sign up for that too, Joseph. At McBride Law NYC, uh, that's a great suggestion. And I know that you're representing several clients, and you're actually advertising to raise money for them. It's it's uh, on Give Send Go. By the way, that's the one John Eastman is using. And so I just want to commend it to you. Also, Give Send Go, uh, and he's representing Christopher Quaglin, Daniel Goodwin, whose mother Marie listens to this show. Richard Barnett, Ryan Nichols, and Victoria White. I know that's quick, but if you go to um, McBride Law in NYC, at McBride Law NYC on Twitter, you can uh, take down those numbers uh, more slowly and uh, capture them. Uh, give us a highlight, uh, if you could. We have just a couple minutes left. Give us a highlight, Joseph, of just some of the other people you have, just a sentence about what's their circumstance and why they need help. Well, if you look at the case of, uh, of Daniel Goodwin, this is, this is a great uh, American citizen. He's passionate about his faith. He's passionate about his country. Never been convicted of, of, of any felony crime before. He's got no criminal record. And he walked into the Capitol, into an open door, and said to somebody, hey, how you doing? And called one of the cops an oathbreaker. And then he left. Um, and they want to put him in jail with felony charges. It's ridiculous. He walked in during a protest and, 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 and protested, and he walked out. He did nothing. They want to keep him in jail. Richard Barnett, 60 years old, no criminal record of any kind, put his feet up on the desk. They want 11 years in jail. Ryan Nichols, decorated uh, Marine Corps veteran, spent the majority of his free time in search and rescue missions all across the country, getting people out of floodwaters and tornadoes and hurricanes. They want 15 years in jail. Victoria Wright was beaten unmercifully. They want years in jail. Christopher Quagler, no criminal record. They want years in jail. It's yes. wrong. It, it is wrong. And I, I'm uh, again, I'm so grateful to you for doing these defense things. Let me just say to all of you listening, there are vigils today all over the country. If you go to lookaheadamerica.org slash vigil, 
look at lookaheadamerica.org slash vigil. There are uh, vigils all over. One will be held at the D.C. jail and then all over near you also if you look at that website. Uh, Joseph uh, McBride, we, we so appreciate you. Thank you so much for your time, and we wish you just Godspeed as you defend these innocent people. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. President Biden and Vice President Harris are set to deliver remarks this uh, Thursday on the one-year anniversary of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi also plans a moment of silence on the House floor and a prayer vigil on the steps of the Capitol. Yes, she is. And that's today. That's one year ago. It was January the 6th. It's really hard to believe. It, it really is hard to believe a year has passed. Uh, let's say the left sure does make uh, use of one year. They certainly do. And Nancy Pelosi's uh, dictum when she talks about today, it's going to start at noon. They're going to have reflections on all that happened and how horrible it was. And they're going to celebrate the patriotism and courage of our members as we prepare for this difficult day is an inspiration for which I sincerely thank you. When I think of the members of the House, I think of the uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the bathroom, you know, doing live FaceTime, worried about being raped. I think about Mitt Romney running out, kind of worried about his hairdo. I'm not sure what he was worried about, but I didn't see a lot of bravery. I saw a lot of bravado, uh, but but they're going to celebrate their bravery and pat themselves on the back. It's going to be tough to take today. I can tell you that already. Well, um, my next guest, Ben Weingarten, is the senior fellow at the London Center for Policy Research. He's also a fellow at the Claremont Institute a senior contributor for The Federalist. Uh, He's the author of a book called American Ingrate, Ilhan Omar and the Progressive Islamist Takeover of the Democratic Party. Uh, And I could go on and on about Ben. uh, Ben's been a friend for a long time. His Twitter account, by the way, is at B.H. Weingarten, at B.H. Weingarten. He is a wealth of information, as people who read Newsweek know now, because he just had a great article uh, uh, published there called The Year of Ruling Class Crackdown on Dissent. And he joins us this morning. Ben, thanks for joining us. Sandy, it's always a pleasure, and thanks so much for that kind introduction. Let me just ask you, uh, I know how I feel about how today, today is going to be and what's going to happen, but I want to know what you think. What Are you are you going to watch television? What are you expecting to unfold here on this year anniversary? Uh, I, I suspect it's going to be unwatchable theater on the level of the uh, Kented cloth genuflection that our betters in Washington, D.C. engaged in uh, following um, the George Floyd riots in the summer of 2020. Uh, This is going to be the ultimate attempt to exploit and hyper-politicize the events of those hours at the Capitol on January 6th. And it's part of what I would argue is a running information operation to try and leverage and exploit the worst of the acts of the minority of the small percentage of tens of thousands of peaceful people who were in Washington, D.C. that day to smear, target and chill tens of millions of people who the left has cast as insurrectionists or their co-conspirators. And that's a consistent way I felt about the events from the, almost the very start following January 6th of last year, I wrote a week later in The Federalist that what transpired at, on January 6th among the worst of the actors was a shameful, pathetic display. Uh, it undermined 
the legitimate questions that we ought to have answered, still ought to have answered, about the irregularities surrounding the first mass mail-in election in history, the 2020 presidential election. It completely overshadowed those legitimate questions. I, I argued it would be used to smear and undermine tens of millions of peaceful, God-fearing, patriotic Americans. And sadly, that's exactly how it's played out. But I will say, if there, we're going to take one silver lining out of all of this, the fact that January 6th, Democrats choose to play as 2022 opens, I think speaks to the weakness of the hand that they have, which is that this is the distraction that they can put forth to try to claim that our democracy is under threat, so-called, as they engage in a crackdown on dissenters and censor people and use the full powers of the government and the private sector to intimidate them and try to shunt them out of American life. But they can't run on their actual agenda. All they can run on is the politics of insurrection, so-called. Uh, but that said, a, a wounded ruling class is a dangerous ruling class. And in a midterm election year that looks very bleak for them, uh, never underestimate the damage that they can do as they try to cling to power. Yes. Well, I don't. I totally agree with you, Ben. I, I see it the same way, maybe not as eloquently. I would just say uh, that I think they're running scared. Uh, things, The wheels are coming off the bus for them, but that doesn't mean that they're going to lose this because they are doubling down. They could still prevail uh, no matter what, what's true and what is false. And uh, I do want to say one thing. I think as the uh, year has unfolded about January 6th, we're learning so much more about what happened on that day. And I think it's fair to say that uh, probably the uh, the true Trump supporters who went there and maybe did bad things on that day, I think there was a lot of incitement, uh, and there was it was a lot more convoluted. The narrative is just not so simple. I remember at the time I thought the same thing. I thought, oh no, this is just this is just this is really undermining what's happening in the chamber, which is at the time hopefully we were hopeful that there would be some more consideration about those uh, the electoral college. Uh, votes, but um, it did it did undermine that. But I think that was purposeful on the part of the left, and I think that people were just played. I really do. Uh, but uh, let's talk about. Uh, you say in your piece in, in Newsweek, I think you say that you think that the narrative, basically, of the January sixth happening is kind of unraveling. Do you really think so? And what what makes you think so? Well, I think it's unraveled on the merits in terms of this was not a murderous insurrection on the level of a Pearl Harbor or 9-11 or the throes of the Civil War. Um, the, the constant effort to really shamefully exploit for Officer Brian Sicknick's death, claiming from the very beginning that it was those at the Capitol that day who killed him, bludgeoned him to death, which proved false, yet made it into the impeachment number two effort and continues when we talk about what transpired that day. Of course, the only person who was killed that day at least that we know of right now, is Ashley Babbitt, who was shot by a Capitol cop, the only person shot by a Capitol cop that day. And none of the officials who were there on the grounds that day died as a consequence of the results of that day. Officer Sicknick died of natural causes, and according to the medical examiner, and several other people weeks later uh, committed suicide. And while uh, that's horrible, the attempt to link it to what transpired on January 6th, I think, speaks at how disingenuous that part of the narrative is. Also, the notion that this was armed. You would think that were this some sophisticated Al-Qaeda-style attack as, you know, the, the president and many members of the media and national security and law enforcement officials have tried to portray it, you'd think they might have been armed. You know, if this was the left's caricature of a frothing MAGA mob, 
you would think they would support the Second Amendment and be gun nuts in the last view. Well, there have been five firearms charges filed of the 700 plus people who have been charged in connection with January 6th. None of them had a firearm on their person at the Capitol. Mercifully so, but it just underscores the disingenuousness about the idea of armed. And yes, there were people using all manner of improvised weapons that day, again, shamefully so. But the narrative, the constant straining in the narrative, I think is really fascinating to witness and I think speaks to the weakness of the case, as does all of the obfuscation around the 14,000 plus hours of footage that we're not allowed to see for some reason. Um, the obfuscation and the hemming and hawing from Merrick Garland and others about the informants that the likes of the New York Times have reported were on the ground. Of course, there are alleged provocateurs as well that have been raised in cases, and we'll see if we ultimately get full transparency. Julie Kelly has made a compelling case that police themselves may have comported themselves poorly that day, and we haven't seen the footage to adjudicate it one way or another, but essentially saying that there could have been provocation of people who otherwise were acting peacefully. The fact that there's so much obfuscation and this attempt to paint this as this murderous day in which democracy hung in the balance, when you compare it to in particular, and we do this at Real Clear Investigations in a database, what transpired during the summer of 2020, where there were riots that were far more widespread, far more destructive in terms of property damage, far more violence, which led to substantially more arrests and the like. And yet there was no equivalent effort to use the full force of the national security, law enforcement, intelligence apparatuses to pursue people. And in fact, the mass dismissal of those cases, plus, last but not least, the fact that nowhere in a court of law has anyone been charged with insurrection, sedition, treason, terrorism, to the point where one of the judges overseeing the cases, and this is a direct quote, if not very close to a direct quote, said to federal prosecutors, the Biden Justice Department, why are you trying to litigate the crime of the century with class B misdemeanors? And by the way, the vast majority of the charges put forth of the 700 plus people charged are misdemeanors, all strike at the core of the narrative that's been put forth, which again is not to condone the worst of the actions, but is to say, why are they straining so hard to make this case when they clearly can't make the case in a court of law? And I think it's because they're trying to engage in a political persecution in lieu of a legal prosecution. Yes. Well, I totally agree, Ben. Uh, let me just add two little, two, they're not little, but I, I actually have seen footage of a policeman, either, we don't know if it's Capitol Police or if it was uh, a, a D.C. police person, uh, throwing one of the protesters off that ballast, that real high area, and he falls down, and I think both of his legs were broken, and he nearly died. He landed on his back. And then I also saw a female black policewoman beating Roseanne Boylan, who ended up dying, and they said she died of a heart attack. But that's, I mean, so i just mentioning those things just to clarify uh, what I think is out there. I want to ask you this, though. So, what is driving what you call the ruling class, and it's a great way to label them, what is driving the ruling class to so thoroughly vilify Trump supporters who, um, uh, who were there on January the 6th? Why the drive to do that? What is it, what, to what benefit is it for them? Yeah, essentially, there's been this narrative put forth seemingly from on high with all the newspapers, including the New York Times and others, glomming onto it that our democracy, so-called, which every time you hear that, you should think of it as what the ruling class means is their power, the ruling exactly. class's power, is exactly. under threat. Consequently, if MAGA writ large represents 
domestic terror and that domestic terror has now been mainstreamed and tens of millions of Americans are potentially wild-eyed domestic terrorists, insurrectionists and such, then that threat is used as a pretext to justify a whole slew of assaults on really what are just the political opponents of our ruling class, basically non-progressive, normal, patriotic Americans. It's not even conservatives or populists or the like. It's anyone who dares dissent on any of the seminal questions that are imperative to the ruling class maintaining its power and perpetuating its power. And so as I detail in this Newsweek article, over the last year, there were three major issues that you simply could not touch or the federal authorities and others in civil society, which is in some ways even more disturbing because you expect government to sometimes threaten people's rights, but it's even worse when people do it of their own volition in a free civil society. Three issues that they used to claim that essentially dissenters either posed a national security threat, a public health threat, or both. And those three issues were daring to question the integrity of the 2020 election, challenging that the official narratives around the coronavirus draconian policies and proclamations as well. And then last but not least, daring to dissent when it comes to critical race theory, what I would call racial Marxist indoctrination in schools, as well as opposition to the school lockdown. Why those three issues? What is it that so sticks in the craw of the ruling class on those three issues that required the Biden administration to put forth a first of its kind national strategy for countering domestic terrorism to sick the FBI and the DOJ and other authorities and parents concerned about the education that they pay for? for their kids? Why is it that they had to put out threat bulletins claiming that COVID misinformation and the like could be used uh, to incite violence? And of course, this uh, quashing of dissent and so-called misinformation that turned out to be legitimate and weeks after that got people thrown off of social media en masse. Well, in the case of the election integrity, it gets to the legitimacy of the ruling class's political power. Can't question that. When it comes to coronavirus, it gets to their power to usurp arbitrarily and capriciously all of our natural rights for months on end. It's huge power over every aspect of our lives. And then when it comes to CRT, critical race theory, and Terry McAuliffe basically said this, and it's one of the reasons he lost, is they believe they ought to have a monopoly on indoctrination of kids as opposed to educating them in a pro-American and traditional liberal arts sort of curriculum. Those three things you can't challenge because the ruling class has to have a monopoly on power and a monopoly on narrative that serves that power. And so consequently, anyone who dissents has to be labeled a threat to the homeland. And that is used as a pretext, a pretense to justify, a pretext rather, to justify this assault that we've seen across the public and private sector over the last year plus, And that's going to continue into 2022, it seems. You know, also, I think, uh, Ben, the what's happened with the J6 prisoners it kind of gives us a glimpse into what they have in mind for all of us, and that's the, re, the re-education, uh, the making sure that they have to read the proper things, they have to say the right things, they can't cling to a notion that the 2020 election was wrongly decided, or they can't get out of prison. Uh, this is kind of gives us a glimpse into what they have in mind for all of us. I want to ask you something, though. When I, we think of the ruling class, I think of Nancy Pelosi, I think of Chuck Schumer, I think of Mitch McConnell, who was so offended Uh, that Americans would come to the Capitol and interrupt democracy because, of course, they are democracy. The people are not democracy, I guess, according to Mitch McConnell. But that's who I think of when I think of the ruling class and and others, too, of course. But uh, I I can understand intellectually why they want to shut up their opposition. But why, why would banks and phone companies 
and just random judges and politicians uh, of both parties so willingly help this narrative? Why would newspapers and televisions and networks and even Fox, why would they all jump on this bandwagon uh, when there is so much loss even to them and their families in supporting such a crackdown, freedomless regime? Can you answer that? Yeah, I think that there are different reasons for different cohorts here, but a lot of it comes down to there are dupes, useful idiots, cowards, and cynics among them. Um, So, you know, take the executive of a Fortune 500 company. First of all, many of his employees may be the ones advocating for all this. I mean, they've been indoctrinated in the same institutions that uh, those at the commanding heights have all been indoctrinated in. So they have to answer to their employees. Then I think they fear the political power and the left activist groups who will agitate on behalf of many of these causes. Uh, Then there are those who I think think that they can essentially pay for protection, that if they go along with the scheme, they'll be taken care of, they'll get government contracts, they won't have the mob at their door. They think they can feed the crocodile and the crocodile won't eat them at the end of the day. Uh, And then, of course, I mean, there are the true believers. Uh, in this this whole movement. But we've seen an anti-cultural revolution take place in this country at warp speed, really subsequent uh, to the killing of George Floyd or the death of George Floyd. And and I think we've seen it manifest itself in, in a whole variety of, of really disturbing ways. And of course, you know, most of these people, even if they might agree on certain political bases with President Trump and what he represented, even just have a cultural and sort of an aesthetic aversion to fly over country and the forgotten man and women who Donald Trump represented. And so he stood as a symbol that stuck in their craw. And most of all, he and the movement that he represented threatened the power and privilege of our ruling class because he basically challenged all of the conventional wisdom under which they've operated and prospered for decades. So for all those reasons, I think that that's all bound up in this counter reaction. And just to return to your initial point, because I think it's a really important one that ought to be underscored. When it comes to those held in the D.C. jail, for example, I believe that they absolutely serve as an example, as a symbol, as a message to the American people, that basically this is what happens if you dare dissent. And again, that's not to condone or dismiss the acts of the most violent people on that day who committed the most egregious crimes. But when you have people with no criminal record, held in pretrial detention for months on end, and some of them are going to spend over a year there. When you have these allegations of 23 hours in solitary confinement and being beaten and abused and judges calling for the removal of certain prisoners because of the danger to them, uh, when the prisoners themselves pushed for an effort that ultimately led to a judge calling for an investigation into conditions there, which led to several hundred people being removed, and not that those held in association with the Capitol breach there, Plus, as you noted, in court, both prosecutors and judges themselves have essentially hyper-politicized it, and even court, uh, court-granted, court-appointed lawyers pushing people to essentially, essentially recant for their political views as a condition to get let out of pretrial detention. That's very disturbing. I mean, imagine a world where, with the left like a world, where a judge says, have you now or did you ever believe that Russiagate was real? Was, the, was President Trump legitimately elected in 2016, or did the Russians help him? And if you answer wrong, you're stuck in jail and you're a danger to society. They have essentially sought to criminalize wrong think, political 
and otherwise. And that crosses a Rubicon beyond which I think any American should be comfortable with, regardless of your political leanings. I haven't said much about your article, Ben, but I want to say this. Uh, it is excellent. We've, we're, we're not going to do it justice at all. I could read paragraph after paragraph in this. It would make for great radio because Ben's done a great job. I'll just give you an idea. He says the year 2020 was the year of the lockdown, but the year 2021 is the year of the crackdown. Uh, and um, you say that every free-thinking individual became a potential Donald Trump, liable to be ostracized, harassed, and punished for daring to cross the regime in a society-wide Russiagate. January 6th, for which the scope of the ruling class's own role is still unfolding, served as the bridge from Trump to his tens of millions of supporters that the conquering ruling class trod over as foretold in its wake. And that's just part of it. There's a lot more to it. But, uh, Ben, I want to know, I can't believe Newsweek published this, <laughs> okay? So I just want to know about that. It, 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 has, has Newsweek changed its editorial uh, view? Uh, isn't it unusual? It seems to me that they really moved way far to the left for a long time. So, so what can you say about that? Uh, I can't say enough about the editorial team, the opinion section team at Newsweek. It's helmed by Josh Hammer, who is a stalwart conservative, uh, a, a very staunch uh, national conservative and, and great legal mind as well. Um, he you know, is a conservative who decided to come in and work in an institution that had been typically on the left, and kudos to him for doing so. There are folks who have the completely diametrically opposite political views on his staff as well. That's what America is about. That's what an opinion yes. page is supposed to be about. You get yep. both sides there, and so I can't say enough positive things about it. Yep, I'm with you on that. That's that's great. And so I just want to give them kudos, too, for pre pre uh, printing this excellent piece. It's called 2021, The Year of the Ruling Class Crackdown on Dissent. And uh, we'll put that on our Facebook page, but it's something you might want to look at and find Newsweek in case you can't find it on my Facebook page for all the reasons that you know. Um, and so you are a little optimistic. I think you're, I agree, Ben, that to some extent, like the COVID narrative, there are a lot of chinks in that right now, huge chinks in that narrative. And the J6 is trickling its way down, the, the whole story, the real story of January the 6th is trickling its way down and people, parents are upset about a critical race theory, and they're still coming to school boards in spite of the intimidation. But do you think, as a general rule, Americans are resilient enough to resist uh, what's happening from the left and hold their ground to what it means to really be an American? I think that the American people are far more resilient and far more awake, woke in the proper way than their purported representatives. But even, for example, if there's a rousing Republican victory in the midterm elections, we're still represented by we will still be represented by such a small cohort of people who truly believe in putting the country first, putting our national interests first. Uh, what's required is really going to be ultimately mass primarying and also a whole of society effort to try to retake these institutions that have been wholly corrupted uh, and, and become appendages of the left. So we have more than our work cut out for us. And that's before we even get to the foreign threat of China, which is another huge focus of mine. But all that said, I guess the, the silver lining that I can put forth is that it's clear that the left can't run on the merits of its agenda because it's crumbled and it's made America crumble for all to see. Doesn't mean that with a huge Republican majority in the House and the like, I mean, look, I, it doesn't mean that if there's a Republican House, Senate, and Presidency, and Supreme Court, 
uh, that our problems are going to be fixed because unfortunately still too many in our ruling class, you and a party ruling class, are on the wrong side of these issues. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to hold their feet to the fire. We're not going to stop. Let me remind all of you listening, today is the first anniversary of January the 6th. You can go to lookaheadamerica.org and find out where there is a vigil near you. There'll be one of the J6 jail tonight in Washington, or in, yeah, in Washington, D.C. And also all across the country, lookaheadamerica.org slash vigil. Also go to alignact.com, alignact.com and sign this letter to your legislator to tell them they need to defend these people that are held in pretrial detention and treated so poorly. That's something that you can do on this anniversary date. Ben Weingartner, thank you so much, Ben. It's great to talk to you. We appreciate all your offerings and your great thoughts. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk.